The, <clears throat> the title of this evening's talk is Metta, the Heart's Release. And beginning with some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop, excuse me, we will develop love, we will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, as has already been said a few times in this retreat, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. This evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation, which is classically called a Brahmavihara, a divine abiding. <clears throat> the radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving-kindness and acceptance and unconditional friendship, the experience of connection and appreciation, all of which isn't fraught with any clinging or attachment and not even necessarily a sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of heart and mind arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. It's really also important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when concentration and when mindfulness are able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep us from connecting with our own bodily and mental experience with clarity and with kindness. And so beginning with an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular uh, and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat, a forest adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who, in fact, offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during their rains retreat. And they also, these uh, supporters, were also very happy to keep the monks' alms bowls filled during their practice period. And so the monks moved in, and they began practicing insight meditation, vipassana. It said that the un seen beings, the forest devas, who lived in this forest 
uh, dwelling or forest area, uh, became fearful of the monks. And they began to feel uh, quite put out of their home once they realized that the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. So these forest-dwelling beings began, began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and, and sights and emit some very distasteful odors, hoping that all of this would make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough, the monks became quite terrified which broke their samadhi, broke their concentration, and disrupted their mindfulness. And some of them, it's said, even developed a fever and and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt it was totally impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and related their tale to which the Buddha responded. My beloved monks, he said, go back to exactly that same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that forest, again saying that it was just impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response to this was, Dear monks, Because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you have encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a true weapon of protection. It's sad that it was at this point that the Buddha offered them the metta teaching and the metta practice. Out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to the say that same forest. For a while, continuing to experience feelings of fear and anxiety, while at the same time they very diligently and very virtuously practiced metta. Well, soon there were no more fearful sights or fearful sounds. And whereas the devas had previously been hostile towards the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared. And they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the devas' experience along with a sense of feeling quite connected, like with family. And the inclination arose to provide an environment of safety, to provide an environment of safety to protect the monks from the particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest, so that these monks could practice their meditation peacefully. After recovering and strengthening and deepening their concentration and open-hearted presence through practicing metta, it's said that 
all 500 monks at some point began practicing vipassana meditation again with metta as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that they all, every one of them, became arahants, became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, of a heart, protected through the energy of metta, this quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows, allows for and, and that brings connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, another particular person, or various groups of beings, wishing oneself and others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences begin to pale. They are, of course, important on one level, but within this incredible radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love. Our personal wants and our personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of metta, this this quality of human kindness, is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our whole being. And then at some point, radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does this capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does this 
quality, this capacity, come from? It comes actually from our own experience of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been freely given to us from another. If you had never, ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, really such people are very, very rare. And every one of us here in this room has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given to us freely. So a very everyday, ordinary example, at least in my life, (laughs) a few days before the retreat began, this retreat, I walked into the post office in my neighborhood to pick up the mail. And as I was walking towards the door, someone opened the door and held it open for me to walk through. I didn't know this person. I'd never seen this person before, at least never noticed them before. And we looked at each other as she held the door open and we smiled at each other. And I thanked her. And I really felt a warm, silent connection between us. And it was just that. That's unconditional kindness given freely in a very simple, ordinary way. And each of us, of course, have experienced kindness with people we know and with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness expressed with a much more overt and stronger energy. That unconditional warmth of loving kindness. So this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water, and that we fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's kind of like a circle, it's a circle and it's, it's kind of like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. We grow it, we cultivate it. And we give it out. Offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential and very beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give, it's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way their help. 
unconditional kindness given freely. It's a choice, a very natural choice that others make, that we make. And it has an effect on us. And it has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from, the other three divine abidings. Compassion, karuna and pali, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita in pali, and equanimity, upeka in pali. It's also the capacity of heart, the capacity of mind that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. With each and all of these qualities really being an essential ground for us throughout the practice and process of liberation. When I was in China for a few months in 1986, I found that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with the metaphor for breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty, where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the text, it's often spoken of as non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of our uh, body and mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others, the absence of ill will in all directions, 
here in retreat, how often might we think that the person maybe next to us or the maybe the person on the other side of the room, how often, often might we think that their practice is really so much better than ours? Or maybe the comparing mind says that person really isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. The felt judgments, they're better than me, or I'm no good, or I'm great, no sleepiness, no movement. Well, just look at that person over there nodding away, restless, moving around, and on and on. Well, quite obviously, this is not metta. We're creating, in fact, we're creating a separation. Me and other. And the heart, the mind is contracted. And if we really notice, it's quite uncomfortable. And so we mindfully recognize and acknowledge that this too is part of our practice. And we learn that One way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta and also offer the other person in the equation metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we're identified with and what we're attached to either in a positive or a critical way as our self, our body, our thoughts, our ideas, opinions, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature, in relationship to other beings as well. A heart, a mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings. Not only those that we're close to in our lives, those that it's easy to care about, or those who might be useful or maybe amusing or pleasing to us, A heart, a mind that's filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity to be able to connect and to care for any being, all beings. And some words from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair, but when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. 
It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has really no interest in comparing or in fixing. It allows things to be as they are within the process of our practice and within the process of our life. Within the process of our practice, we're developing an inner sense of well-being, an inner sense of patience and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't coexist. They can't exist at the same time. As each of you are practicing here in the very specific ways that you are, essentially cultivating and developing a deeply concentrated clarity of attention. Some of you are practicing that way primarily. Cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness. Some of you are also working with the practice of metta in relationship to its purifying and its healing aspects. And with this, you're also learning at least to some degree, that metta practice also aids the development of our capacity for a clear, deep, and strong, concentrated, mindful attention. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and the mind from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through our mind and heart and body begin to unwind, begin to weaken, begin to fade, and even eventually potentially dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who taught through dialogue with his students, one of his students asked him, what can make me love? And Nisargadatta's response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and important to me 
when I began to discover it, is that metta really doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we may not agree with or connect with beings who may act in ways that we might not like or even might not condone. So metta is really acceptance on a very deep universal level but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites. No favoring one over another with metta. So, consequently, it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and most powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional, meaning no conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, the world would have flown apart, broken apart, long ago. There have been periods throughout human history, up until this very moment, when there have been more or less when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times. Times of relative ease in the world. And periods when the world has been and is now increasingly unsettled. More violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so very essential, essentially necessary. The writer, Dina Metzger, said this, There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is no time to go slowly. There is no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. He said, hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus, that our thoughts and words and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the kama, the Pali word, karma, the Sanskrit word, 
the kama that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never know. So now I'd like to just spend a a little bit of time exploring some expectations of what we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some very familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is based on something we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect or to look for something that we don't know, something that we've never experienced, or to look for something that maybe we have experienced but that we didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness, that we didn't label as unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta does and can manifest manifest as a very familiar felt sense. But we can get caught. We can get uh, stuck in expecting this. It's limiting. Metta is not sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in the absence of greed, in the absence of aversion. It's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling we think of or maybe are not familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others, to connect directly clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy to come by. For most of us, there are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen or seen through and let go of along the way of our practice. I found that over the years, the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story 
in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar, that really demonstrates this clearly, very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, and he was foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. The story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. And all of the monks were uh, beginning to disperse for their various duties and various responsibilities in other places. And this is the story, the sutta. It's from the Anguttara On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindaka's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave on a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you are ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda went around to all of the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Buddha, the Blessed One, as they called him. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him sat down to one side. When he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Bhikkhu Rahula was the Buddha's son the discourse you gave to Bhikkhu Rahula when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body, in the body, of the actions of the body, in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances, such as urine, spittle, pus, and blood, Yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. 
Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, and yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will, a monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet, for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand, and clad in rags, enters the village with a humble heart. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. And at one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused the Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me. 
and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But you have recognized your offense and make amends. We pardon you. It is a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. Then the Buddha turned to the Venerable Sariputta, saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this reverend monk, revered monk, also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he, too, forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three, time to each, three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is really intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this sometimes in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, feeding her, giving her pieces of banana as she was sitting in her high chair. And then she took one of the pieces from me, took it out of my hand, and put it into my mouth with a great big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me a very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. Some years ago I was reading a book that was about and by a 102-year-old black man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support the family. So he never attended school, and he never learned how to read until at the age of 98, he decided to attend a literacy program. And he learned how to read at the age of 98. And then he wrote a book about himself. It's an amazing, inspiring and quite illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and how he learned to survive in the world. So I'd like to read just a little bit uh, from this book. At one point, George is having a 
conversation with Richard. <clears throat> Richard is the man who helped George write the book. <clears throat> and they're talking together uh, about George, who at the age of 101 uh, was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. And so Richard's speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that care about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone, George. That's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. All those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. So, the cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. As an example of the stability and the beauty of a heart, a mind, steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue on a little bit with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South, growing up in East Texas. And during that time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George's words now. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor, two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace. When I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. 
There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted, but I want no animal. I wasn't going to eat with dogs, and if I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye, and I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry, she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening to the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held onto, much of what we've grasped very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguished, the anguish we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. And it's not so easy to relinquish this. It's not so easy to relinquish this conditioning, these habituated patterns of self, of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times, but it's very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy, which is constituted by great confidence and strength and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta.
And in closing the talk, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman. Now, some of you have heard this story before. Uh, a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. This comes from a book called On the Res. Sue Ann was born on March 15, 1974, on the Pine Ridge Reservation. She grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, who was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind, unsupervised wanderings, and later cruising around in cars were out. Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chip Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to the small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes that stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another, they did them all, cross-country running and track and volleyball and cheerleading and softball and basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. She performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio, her mother and sisters getting very tired of the sound. So for variety then, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. 
But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted, their fans will feel unwelcome, the host gym will be dense with hostility, and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed at times was the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leed to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the Leed fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. After that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually, the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead school band joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't, I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her, team, her teammates were taken by surprise and some of them bumped into each other. Coach Imiga at the rear of the line didn't know why they had stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulders and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl, and the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff, the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow a teammate said. And in the sudden quiet, 
All they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie to Corey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. And she sprinted to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Leed. And I agree. This was Sue Ann's Lion's Roar. and a brief poem by Hafiz that he calls The Sun Never Says. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. And he said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power behind his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice can often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation. You do what seems to come naturally. And then, after the fact, you realize that you handle the situation really differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a very clearly focused mindful awareness and loving kindness and compassion and maybe joy and equanimity is the true result. At the time, what you do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal, you might say, to a friend who asks how you were able to stay so present and do what needed to be done so easily. But it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and it changes the lives of everyone you encounter. So closing the talk with another Mary Oliver poem. She's making her way into this retreat. This is an excerpt from one of her poems. 
that I don't remember the name of. <laughs> what I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then I have gone out from my confinements, through with difficulty. I mean the ones that thought to rule my heart, I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or other. And I have become the child of clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself. Then forget it. Then love the world. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.